I don't think that knowing ourselves is a finite experience because we are ever evolving, ever maturing, ever developing. And if we are lucky and if we are self-examining, we get to keep getting to know ourselves over and over again across mm-hmm. our lifespan. And that is really fun. It can be challenging at times, but it's really fun if you let it be an adventure. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Dr. Kate Balistrieri is a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist and the founder of Modern Intimacy, a group practice that specializes in treating trauma, addiction, sex, and relationship issues. She's a certified sex addiction therapist and a packed, trained couples therapist that is passionate about helping people heal from trauma and move from a position of pain to a position of peace and thriving in their lives. Before we started our interview, I hadn't planned to ask her about her experience as a forensic psychologist, But in learning that she had over 14 years of clinical experience conducting clinical and forensic evaluations, providing expert witness testimony in court, and being a provider in clinical, forensic, and correctional settings, my curiosity got the best of me. And so today, we start our interview there. Before we get started, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about forensic psychology. I'm not that familiar, and so I'm interested, yeah, just a bit more about it. Sure, of course. So forensic psychology really means anywhere where the field of psychology intersects with the legal system. So that can look like a lot of different things. It can look like psychologists helping with jury selection on cases, for example, It can look like a psychologist working with police departments to either help serve as the psychologist who provides mental health services for officers or who helps them organize their thoughts about how better to approach the criminal justice 
tasks that they have at hand. It can look like profiling. It can look like working in the prison systems and assessing and treating offenders. It can look like providing expert witness testimony in different kinds of cases as it relates to the psychology involved in a case. So as it relates to me and my work, I spent the better part of about 10 years working in various prisons with male and female inmates, ranging in age from 13 to 80. And I specifically focused on working with sex offenders and other high-risk, violent, non-sexual offenders, serial killers, murderers, serial arsonists, things of that nature. So I did a lot of assessments, a lot of treatment, some expert witness testimony, And then eventually I started working with the courts and was doing evaluations with the courts to help them discern whether or not children should be separated from their parents or whether reunification was possible after uh, a case of abuse or neglect was called in to DCFS. And so I would evaluate the family and put together a plan for reunification or dissolution of parental rights. And then how did you transition from that to your private practice and the other work that you do now? So in my work as a forensic psychologist, there was no shortage of trauma present in the people's lives with whom I worked. And I often found myself doing a lot of kind of punctuated therapy because unfortunately, however well-intentioned, the prison systems just aren't really set up for real long-term extensive therapy, much like private practice or outpatient facilities are in the private sector. So what I found was that I was doing a lot more crisis intervention work, which is necessary, but I wasn't really able to spend the kind of time with inmates that was necessary to really help them heal the trauma that was part of the predicating factors that compelled their criminal behavior more often than not. So I found myself getting very burnt out in a system that was overtaxed and under-resourced and frankly carries a lot of stigmas around mental health practices even to this day. And so I, I felt like I wanted to work in an environment where I had more opportunity to curate effective treatment plans for people. And also there were resources available to help people get the services that they needed. And while I miss working with incarcerated populations, because frankly, as challenging as it can be, it's one of the most rewarding populations to work with. But the prison system is just set up to make it very challenging to do a job well done. So I decided to branch off into private practice, and at the time I lived in Chicago. So my practice was a few blocks down from a very well-known addiction treatment center, and I started working with people who were in early recovery. And I certainly had worked with a lot of addiction issues in the prison systems, but again, totally different resources available in the private sector. And I started really seeing the way people could heal when they actually had access to the things that they needed to heal. And it was beautiful. So that really forged a path for me 
for all of my future work to include being able to work in private practice and treat trauma very directly and very intentionally. And then all of the things that are born out of trauma, specifically things like different kinds of chemical addictions, process addictions like sex, porn, love addiction, gaming addiction, gambling addiction, things of that nature, disordered eating, which is another kind of process addiction, and lots of different relationship and sexual dysfunction issues. So that's really where I spend the bulk of my time is helping people heal from trauma and early wounds and help them navigate relationships in a way that creates the most optimal platform for intimacy, emotional and sexual, and really thrive in their lives and develop the path forward from a place where they feel like they've been in pain or they don't have skills that they want to a place where not only are they feeling more balanced, but they're thriving. Wow, that's such an interesting journey that you've been on. I I think it is really interesting. I usually ask people as the first question, how did you end up where you are today doing the work you're doing today? So this is kind of a perfect introduction. And with the theme of trauma and your own evolution in understanding, you know, how it works, but how to help people cope with it, overcome it, and get on that path to healing, as you mentioned. And so that's definitely something I wanted to talk about today is kind of what does trauma look like, micro traumas, and some of the other work you've done with talking about covert trauma and all these different things and really understanding the role that it plays in all of our lives, obviously very differently and on different scales, but how it does have a presence, whether recognized or not. But in recognizing trauma in our own lives, it's only through that we can heal it and really allow ourselves to be able to connect. And like you said, to be able to attain intimacy with other people. Mm-hmm. And ourselves. I think one of the biggest culprits of any kind of unresolved trauma is the disconnect from ourselves. And that can sometimes be the most challenging relationship to repair. Absolutely. And the most important one. Okay, perfect. I would love to kind of have your definition of trauma I think now people are becoming more aware of, okay, my past affects the way I see myself, the way I can connect with other people, and my ability to walk through the world and live my life in a certain way. And more and more people are normalizing seeking treatment and therapy and trying to process our past and understand why we are the way we are and the experiences that have shaped us for better or for worse. And so I'd love to have you kind of introduce your definition of of trauma and kind of the scope that we can refer to when we use that term and the role that it plays in our lives. Such an important question. I'll start by saying this. My definition of trauma might be very different than someone else's because trauma is a completely subjective experience. So what might be really debilitating for one person might not even register as more than a blink of an eye to another person. And so I think when we're considering trauma, the most important thing to remember is that if it feels 
overwhelming to the point of uh, feeling like it causes you to decompensate, regress, it feels overwhelmed, threatening psychologically or physically. This is generally a trauma. And traumas can happen in a single incident or they can occur in a chronic context. They can be really big in their nature or they can be really sort of small in isolation, but the cumulative effect of lots of little, they call them little T traumas, can have just as devastating of an impact as a big T trauma can have. So how we define that is really up to us and it depends largely on our previous experiences, our own temperament and genetic predispositions to perceive things in certain ways and be sensitive to different things. But oftentimes, how do I want to say this? I have yet to meet one person who hasn't had a trauma (laughs) in their life. And I don't say that flippantly. I think we often underestimate what is really painful or overwhelming. And when we think about trauma, I think it's Pia Melody who defines developmental trauma as any kind of developmental approach that just missed the mark. So even things like invalidation, if it's chronic, can be considered a traumatic developmental trauma. And When we look at all of the different ways that we can experience trauma physically, sexually, financially, culturally, socially, emotionally, spiritually, all of these different spaces that we live in psychically and physically can be a wellspring for safety or pain. And when we experience hurt that we feel ill-equipped to tolerate for whatever reason, that would be what I would consider a trauma. And as you mentioned, even smaller things can accumulate, particularly if not dealt with. For example, if somebody has kind of a more clear one-time traumatic event, but properly processes and understands and copes with that experience, Mm -hmm. versus if somebody is experiencing more kind of micro traumas, but not acknowledging them, burying them deep. I've looked a lot into kind of the theory of tissue memory and how that kind of can ingrain itself in certain patterns and express itself like PTSD because these things build up. Again, not to say things flippantly, but that's relevant here too. A lot of it is the way we do or don't process and deal with things. And so you talked about leaving kind of the judicial system, wanting to have the time and space and capability to go deeper with people and get them on a path towards healing. And so my next question for you would be, what does healing look like? Oh, I love this question so much. Healing, from my perspective, can look like a couple of things. First, I think it includes feeling witnessed in your pain. Some people have plenty of witnessing that's happened and not a lot of resolution, but for the most part, people, when they experience trauma, they often feel very isolated in that trauma. And I think part of healing is being able to experience a witnessing of how you have been impacted and the struggles that you've had and support as you 
leverage the scaffolding available to get from this point of pain to a point of feeling okay. And so I think healing then becomes a process of, especially as it relates to relational trauma, when we are hurt in the context of a relationship, some amount of healing is done on our own, but really the true holistic healing happens in future relationships or in the same relationship in which we were wounded, but a future iteration of it. So I think when people are exploring therapeutically how to heal, having a therapist is sort of like having a proxied parent, a coach, a cheerleader, an audience, someone to lean on, a mentor, if you will. You get to have this experience and let someone else shoulder some of the overwhelm and give you tools and teach you tools to be able to tolerate the pain while it's fresh and to be able to assimilate the experience in a way that allows you to create meaning moving forward. Most of the unresolved trauma that we experience in our lives, or I should say the, the symptoms that are born out of unresolved trauma, are really around affective dysregulation and then feeling unsafe in the world and being unable to trust again. And so when you have someone that you can work with, whether it's a therapist or a trusted friend or family member, your task is about learning how to regulate internally and then also learning how to find faith and meaning in the world and in yourself again. So I look at healing as having a lot of different dimensions, physical and physiological, emotional, cognitive, social, spiritual. It's a very holistic process. And a beautiful one, albeit difficult. It was interesting. You mentioned the way in which we need a space of safety or a person who gives us that space or can be witness to the vulnerability, the processing that is required to, again, start to heal. And I found it really interesting how you mentioned a lot of healing happens in future relationships. And you mentioned, and I definitely want to get into it more later, talking about how our relationship with ourself is so important is kind of the core and the foundation, but I found that part really interesting. Could you explain a bit more about the ways in which kind of we use or need or can kind of benefit from healing through and with other people as well? Absolutely. Human beings are relational creatures. We are not designed to survive in a vacuum of isolation And so what that means is that inevitably we are going to be disappointed in relationships. We're going to get hurt. Someone's needs will compete with ours. And things happen in relationships because they're messy, because humans are imperfect. And as much as we try to do our best for the most part, sometimes our self-serving tendencies or self-protective tendencies can really negatively impact the people that we care about. And Stan Tatkin, who is one of my mentors and a brilliant psychologist, often talks about how we need to recognize that 
not having conflict or not being wounded in relationships is just not realistic because we care. If we didn't care about the people that we're in relationships with, then it wouldn't matter to us if they said something sideways or if they missed our birthday or something along those lines. But when we care about people, we are our most vulnerable because we want them to care back and we hope that they do. And that's sort of the beauty of being in a relationship. So when we are hurt, because it's not a question of if, healthy relationships focus on tending to the wound, not pretending like it didn't exist and not trying to dismiss it away and say, well, I didn't mean to hurt you and all of the things that, are, that may be true, but don't really matter in the model of the mind or the heart when we're hurt. What I mean by healing in relationship is whether or not you get to heal in the same relationship in which you were hurt or future relationships, being able to have someone tend to your process and attune to you is the gift of healing. And when other people can give us care and show us affection, attunement, respect, awareness, validation, we can hold on to those things and do it more readily for ourselves in the future. And so that really allows us to build more resilience and more trust and stability in the people that are around us in our community. I don't know if you ever read about that study, the Harlow Monkeys, years and years ago. Are you familiar with it? Yes, yes. Okay. For your listeners who haven't heard of this study, essentially these little rhesus monkeys were given two mommies. One had food but was all wire and had no soft cloth and just sort of a vice for feeding. And the other monkey, pseudo-mother monkey, was also wire but had a warm cloth and no food. And what the researchers learned was that the dependent monkeys would go feed with the wire monkey who didn't have on anything soft. And the minute they were done feeding, they would go right back to the clothed mommy because she was softer, easier to snuggle with, more connection. And that's what humans need too. We'll go where we need to go to get our needs met. But man, if it's nurturing and warm and gooey and respectful of our needs, we love it and we thrive in it. And when we don't have it, we really struggle to reach our fullest human potential. I also, for some reason, just can't help but think of a metaphor as well. I don't know why this is occurring to me, but since it is kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's this kind of wire monkey, but that they wrapped in cozy stuff, but underneath was also still just this kind of wire monkey. And so I think sometimes we, like the baby monkeys, also can be deceived in a way where something feels cozy or feels familiar, so therefore we think it's healthy or it feels right, even though if perhaps it might not be. So true. So true. And I'm just adoring the fact that you brought that metaphor up because it's what happens when we don't get enough of our needs met more often than not in our earliest years. We tend to then mistake the immediate, what feels good for the long term, what is good for us. And that's when we can make compromising decisions in relationships and get ourselves a little bit in trouble because we're not really paying attention to what's going on internally. You also mentioned how when we care about 
people, that's when we are our most vulnerable. And actually just yesterday, I was thinking about how, yes, certain people might encourage us to be more vulnerable or ask questions that challenge us, but there's also something there with people who, even if not explicitly doing so, make you feel comfortable and make you want to go out of your way to become vulnerable, even if it's an implicit or more passive way, but really finding that in relationships where it encourages you to kind of, and I don't want to say take that risk, right? Because it shouldn't be a risk, but to kind of go out on a limb and share something about yourself, share a piece of yourself with somebody. And I think it's almost even more important to acknowledge when it's you deciding to initiate that versus just responding to a request for that. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that was just something that I found myself thinking about yesterday. Yeah. What I'm taking away from that thought is one thing in particular you said about how it shouldn't be a risk. And and that is curious to me because I think whenever we're sharing something of ourselves, that could be perceived as a risk, whether it's a need, a want, an experience, even with people that we trust and have established trust with, it's still a risk to be vulnerable. And I think that's something to honor whenever you're the one in that hot seat or someone else's. Yeah, I just wonder if sometimes risk, what the definition would be, and I'm, I guess I would assume the definition is vulnerable to a negative consequence. And I do think in times, particularly with people maybe we're close with or bringing up a sensitive topic with a partner or with a sibling in family conversation, stuff like that. But then with strangers and in dating, I think people think about it as this big risk. But in the end, the only consequence is, okay, you don't continue talking to this person and you know that you're not compatible, which to me isn't a negative consequence. And so I think sometimes people perhaps are held back by the fear of that risk or the consequence, which is not nearly as negative, if at all, as they might perceive it. Particularly, I think, in kind of new beginning stages of a relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. The only thing I might add to that is that how each person defines risk is, again, subjective because each person has different needs and different desires. And so what might feel very easy to walk away from a new relationship before any roots grow or feelings are had might represent something very different to another person. It might represent another missed opportunity or it might reinforce some kind of negative core belief they have about themselves. And so people can feel risk and disappointment in in many different ways. Absolutely. And again, it's that, it's kind of the scale of trauma or of risk. It's our own operational definitions of for everything and for what, what might for one person be a negative consequence that holds them back to future things for another person might be a motivating reassurance um, or closure by being able to close a chapter or something like that. And so going back to that, the Reese's monkey or the finding 
relationships that help us heal versus being able to recognize ones that don't. You mentioned sometimes people make compromising decisions, but how can we better identify the relationships that are the ones that can help us heal? One of the things that I think is the greatest opportunity in healing from trauma is to really look at kind of how you construct your identity, how you weight and prioritize the different needs that you have of yourself, with yourself, and then, of course, in relationships and in other environmental contexts in your life. And many people don't do that. We just sort of grow up and follow a path. Sometimes that path is prescribed for us. Sometimes it's something we stumble upon. But very rarely do people sit down with much intention and think about, what are my needs? What are my values? How do I prioritize that? How have I neglected those things in the past? And I think when you're healing from a traumatic situation, you really do have an unexpected gift. And that is to be able to sit with those questions with more intention. And when people can do that, they can then more clearly operationalize what would a partnership look like if these values were met and these needs were met? What wouldn't fit within my value system and the needs that I know I have to have in a healthy relationship as I've constructed it? And how do I see myself in relation to the values and needs that I've outlined being fulfilled or not being fulfilled? And when we do that, it becomes a lot easier to recognize both in ourselves and with other people when behavior and words and intentions align and when they don't. And I think one of the key elements of healing is learning how to stay more present and grounded in your own skin. And when you can consistently do that, and it is a practice that requires some effort and a lot of consistency, but in the aftermath of trauma, staying present with your own experience, your own feelings, your own thoughts, and being more with the theme of being self-examining will give you a chance to really be far more careful about who you let in, why you let them in, and who you keep out and why you let them out. And of course, how you show up for other people too. I love that part about examining whether words, behaviors, and intentions align. And being able to recognize when they don't. So I wanted to ask you, this is something that came to mind when you were talking. Are there toxic relationships or toxic people? Oh, I love this question. I really loathe labeling people as toxic relationships. Absolutely. Those exist. Toxic people, I think is really dangerous. It shames what is likely unresolved trauma that is really getting in the way of people having effective interpersonal relationships. So when we can separate behavior from the person, we can start to treat the behavior and the person starts to feel more aligned, safe, trusted, trustworthy. And that can lead to a lot of relational repair. When we start labeling people as toxic, we're really just being very reductionistic and frankly lazy in understanding how someone came to be, who they are, and how their behaviors are working very hard to protect them from hurt. 
Now, sometimes that doesn't make a lot of sense because the behaviors that can be exhibited sometimes cause a lot of the, the drama that ends up hurting. But I think we have to remember that in the model of the mind, self-protection is, again, a very quick process. And what was adaptive when people were younger isn't always adaptive in their adult years, but that doesn't make them throw away people or not worth our love, our care, our cultural attention. They may not be a good fit for you to be in a relationship with, but for someone else, it might be a great fit. So let's not label people. Let's just identify behaviors that don't work for you. Right. And how much, like everything, relationships are so different. Kind of in that same vein, though, do you believe people can change? And if so, to what extent? I do think that people can change. Now, this is a dangerous question because we don't really know kind of what behaviors people immediately are thinking about when we ask and answer that question. There's sort of two things to think about. There's a capacity issue and people's ability to change is sometimes limited by their neurobiological capacity or cognitive capacities. But certainly within those sort of biological limitations, wherever there's motivation, people can change. Sometimes what is challenging is helping people find motivation because their behaviors, again, have served them in some way. And so when you have people who have more egocentric behaviors, meaning behaviors that are problematic in their life, but don't necessarily bother them, they bother everyone around them. <laughs> These tend to be people who are considered to have a personality disorder or other kind of more static conditions. It's more challenging to find the motivation, but certainly where there is motivation to change, people are capable. I love that. Wherever there's motivation, people can change. was wondering if you could give kind of practical advice for people in terms of recognize what is and isn't a healthy relationship? Okay. I'm going to break this down in a couple of different chunks. So first, I would say what constitutes a healthy relationship is really unique to each coupleship. And what feels healthy in one relationship may not in another with a different partner, right? So people's needs are evolving throughout their lifespan. And I don't recommend being incredibly rigid in terms of how you design you know, the blueprint for a healthy relationship, because you might learn that you have needs you weren't aware of. And you might also recognize that some needs don't feel as important when other needs are met or are not met. But all of that said, it really is beneficial to think about what is important to you? And I, I don't mean things like buying a house or having 2.5 children, although those things are certainly important. But, but what's important to you in terms of how you want to interact with a partner on a daily basis? Don't think about the big love bomby vacations or roses or gifts or nice restaurants or all the things. I mean, if those are important to you, great. But be clear on why. And 
it's not realistic for most people to do lavish or sort of big deal things on a daily basis. So really ask yourself, what's important in terms of how my partner and I communicate? Is it important to me that I have a partner who knows how to apologize, who knows how to apologize without my asking for it? Is it important to me to have a partner who is self-examining and accountable? Maybe it's not important to you, right? Think about, is it important to me that my partner asks me questions or doesn't, right? Like really think about what do you want your ideal relationship to look like in the quiet moments, in the boring moments when you're home and you've seen each other all day and you've been together for a few years and your hair's not washed and you're in your crusty sweatpants and you're reheating pizza from the night before. What do you want your relationship to look like in those moments? Because those are the majority of our days. And when you can really get clear around what's important to you, in the little minutiae, then you can start examining, wow, does this person feel like somebody who could fit for me and vice versa? And you'll be able to get a good sense of that because you'll be able to see how they organize their lives. How do they show up? Are they intentional in the ways that are important to you? Are they spontaneous in the ways that are important to you? Do they express themselves in a way that is meaningful for you and honors your process too. Can you guys talk about difficult things in a way that feels respectful, right? And I think often we place a lot of value on more of the superficial things in relationships. Like we have the same religion or the same political views. And I'm not saying those things are not important, but what people come to me in therapy for as a couple, more often than not, are things like, I don't feel seen by my partner. I feel dismissed all the time. I feel disrespected and like they don't hear me or care about what I want or what I need. I feel misunderstood. And that has nothing to do with some of the more superficial things that we can have in common or not have in common. So what's important is how do you interact together and prioritize the feelings of your partner and yourself? right? Do you hold all of that in equal regard? And from a place of equanimity, can you grow together? Can you challenge each other? Do you feel safe enough to let your hair down and your guard down? So I think when you really start getting clear about how do I show up in a relationship and what do I bring to the table? Do I like that? Do I not like that? And then what's important for my partner? You can start expressing those needs, wants, and just make observations about how do they show up? How do you see them in the world? How do they navigate stressful events? How do they approach you when something is uncomfortable or they have some feedback they need to give you? Do they feel comfortable doing that? And all of these things together will start to weave a very intricate tapestry of compatibility, trust, safety. How do you repair after conflict? Do you feel like they meet your effort, you meet their efforts, or is one of you working harder than the other all the time? You know, these are things that I would look at. Look at the how you do your relationship, not necessarily what you're doing in it. That was wonderful. And I think, first of all, it's, again, particularly in this day and age where 
I mean, particularly now during COVID, meeting new people can essentially only be done online via these apps. And it gives you, again, this demographic, this surface level information is kind of all people have to go off of. And that's not really what it's about. Maybe you're not going to play the same sports in 10 years. Maybe you won't want to go out to parties. So I couldn't help but think that whole time that we kind of should look at relationships through the lens of COVID has stripped us of all these distracting, fun, more materialistic things we look at. If we can think about relationships in that same lens, if you were to strip away everything else, would this relationship still be meaningful? And that would be considering, can you be vulnerable? Can you get through a tragedy together? Can you laugh during hardship? Are you still entertained? These more foundational characteristics of being a kind forgiving, compatible human on a deeper level, not in the sense of, do you have mutual friend groups? Do you go to the same parties? Do you have a similar lifestyle? I mean, now we all have pretty similar lifestyles now. So yeah, trying to look at it through that lens and think about, okay, when COVID 2.0 comes around or if we never get out of 1.0, is that something that can still fulfill the more important foundational and often overlooked needs and and joys that we have. One part you mentioned on a more practical and kind of therapeutic level, you said, can you talk about conflict in a way that feels respectful, which is just huge. And I think that would be kind of one of the top identifiers of if something is healthy or not. Because it's, you know, you don't need to agree or not, but you need to be able to recognize another person's feelings, understand them, and want to kind of work through something. And the ability to learn together and grow together, right? Even without the honeymoons and adventures. Just kind of breaking things down to... The simple things, which sometimes are the most beautiful. Simplicity doesn't mean it's not complex. Oh my gosh. No, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, some of the most simple behaviors in a relationship carry the most complex meanings and have the most nuanced and intricate ripple effects on the future of a relationship. And it really is subtle and down to our neurobiology because we are all imprinted with an idea of what relationships look like in our pre-verbal years. So it's not always a conscious expectation and understanding of what we want or are seeking out. In fact, just the opposite, it's mostly unconscious and nonverbal. We find ourselves partnering with people who are familiar to our neurobiological expectations and experience. And if we had a very volatile or toxic first couple of years, or if the people around us were chaotic or unpredictable or not attuned to us, we're going to pick a partner who's more like that. Unless we've done a lot of that inner work to stay more present with ourselves and have 
been examining in a way that allows us to anticipate that. But unfortunately, that doesn't come until we have a few (laughs) unfortunate relationships under our belt, and then we can say, oh, maybe I should pay attention to that. But if we grew up with caregivers who were stable, consistent, attuned to us more often than not, said, I'm sorry, validated our feelings, that's who we're going to gravitate more toward in our partnerships as adults, as our default. And so I think when you're looking at what sets up a healthy or an unhealthy relationship, one thing to really pay attention to is what are the physiological sensations that you notice in your body when you're around this person? Do you feel safe? Do you feel dysregulated on edge, on eggshells? Can you talk about those feelings with your partner and have it be well-received or do they take it as a threat? Much of evaluating the health of a relationship is about thinking about how do you respond to each other's bids for connection, bids for safety, bids for attention. And even if you can't meet your partner's needs, can you attend to that with compassion and say, I would love to hang out with you, but I can't right now. I've got to finish this work. I'll see you in a couple of hours. We're thinking about like, how do you attune to each other? And can you recognize if one of you is overwhelmed, feels engulfed or shut down, or if one of you is getting a little bit more upregulated and anxious, nervous, irritable, can you help each other calm and get back to a place of being sort of neutral or more regulated so that you can have more security in the way that you function together as a couple? Yeah, I think it's just these simple but very complex things of do you feel regulated, calm when you're around this person? I guess we already spoke about the rhesus monkeys, but again, now this, because so much of it comes from our experiences growing up, it might be appropriate to speak a bit to attachment style and kind of the role that that plays in our relationships. Mm -hmm. That's basically what we're talking about is kind of recognizing how do we navigate our attachment needs. And when we look at the different attachment styles that exist, a secure functioning attachment, a preoccupied attachment style, a fearful avoidant, or sometimes it's called ambivalent or also called an angry resistant style, and then more of a dismissive avoidant style, what we're really looking at is how anxious does someone feel in their relationships and how avoidant are they? So when we're looking at those two axes, people who are more preoccupied in their attachment have a lot of anxiety about their relationship. And they're also not very avoidant. They want people around. So that means that there's a lot of preoccupation with the health of the relationship or the functioning because in their mind, unconsciously and sometimes consciously, if my partner's okay, then that means the relationship is okay. And if the relationship is okay, phew, that means I'm okay and I can breathe, right? Conversely, when someone is more ambivalent, fearful, avoidant, they have high anxiety, but also high avoidance, right? They want relationships, they want connections, but they've either been disappointed a significant amount, hurt. So they have a hard time trusting the veracity of relationships. They have a hard time being vulnerable. 
but they're also afraid of being alone. So they let people in, but then they might push them away. So there's, I call this the Heisman (laughs) of attachment. So there's a lot of kind of come here, but don't get too close. Don't overwhelm me, but don't run away. Why don't you come and hang out, but maybe sit on the couch across the room and not right next to me because that feels a little too much. So it's sort of this constant negotiation of, I want this and I don't necessarily feel safe in it. And that can be very difficult to feel. And then, of course, a dismissive uh, attachment style or dismissive avoidant style is really someone who more likely than not has experienced either extreme emotional neglect in a relationship or in their early childhood with their parents, with one or both parents, or a lot of enmeshment and sort of a disregard for their own personhood. And so this is someone who has more of like an anti-dependent relationship to relationships. They're sort of like, yeah, yeah, okay. If you want to hang out, we can, but if not, there's the door. I'm sort of unfettered either way. So low anxiety and also high avoidance. It's hard to have anxiety if you aren't really making it a priority to be around people and if you prefer to be more self-contained kind of getting ready to delve into kind of our relationship with ourself. How important is it to know yourself and what are the consequences of not truly understanding yourself and knowing not only kind of who you are in a sense, but what you need out of a relationship? That's such a great question. First, I don't think that knowing ourselves is a finite experience because we are ever evolving, ever maturing, ever developing And if we are lucky and if we are self-examining, we get to keep getting to know ourselves over and over again across Mm -hmm. our lifespan. And that is really fun. It can be challenging at times, but it's really fun if you let it be an adventure, right? And if you're looking at kind of how you make meaning of the world and yourself in it. I say that to say it's incredibly important to know ourselves as best as we can, but also to recognize that there will always be things we don't know about ourselves and stones unturned that may be positioned a little differently as the tide comes in and out over our life. So I think staying current with yourself is really important. And I might use that language. What's dangerous if we don't really stay current with ourselves and to the best of our knowledge, know ourselves is that we are engaging with the world in a more automatic way. And that is when some of our earlier imprints can start to forage the path. And if we come from relational insecurity, if we're not more conscious and more examining, then we're likely to repeat that as our default. Because as I said, neurobiologically, we gravitate toward what's familiar. And that's not a conscious process. That is our limbic system, our nervous system communicating with other people's and interpreting nonverbal cues at, at rates of speed that we just consciously cannot even keep up with. By the time that part of our brain turns on, we're walking down the altar with someone. <laughs> so it's important to, I would say, really stay curious about yourself and always be wondering, why do I feel this way? Why don't I feel a certain way? Why am I okay with this? Why am I not okay with this? Whether it relates to relationships or 
how you choose the color of your car. I think when you stay curious with yourself, you stand a better chance of being able to identify and advocate for what works for you and what doesn't in a relationship. And that's pretty much the best that we can do because we just can't always anticipate everything that life's going to throw our way. And I think when you get caught off guard, the best thing you can do is just practice a lot of self-compassion and recognition that we're not biotic and we're not robots. And so there's just always going to be some error. And that's where the learning comes in. And that's where the continued growth and adventure comes in if you let it be that in your life. I love the concept of staying curious, a kind of a motto for life, stay curious. And since we do love to give people actionable advice, you mentioned a few questions or kind of tactics, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit more in terms of things people could have in their toolkit for deeper self-awareness and understanding and reflection. I'll share with you one of the things that I will, one of the exercises I often will do with patients, and this is easy. People can go online to the Center for Nonviolent Communication. They have on their website, it's called a human dependency needs list. And it's probably 50 different basic human needs that we all have. At some points in our life, we might feel one need is weighted more heavily than others. But I love this list because you can look at this list. And first of all, I think it's an interesting exercise to think about, was I even aware that I had all of these needs? And if I don't connect with these needs, might there have been, might there have been another point in my life when that need was present? Or is it present in certain relationships or certain contexts and not so much in others? And I think it gives you a really great starting ground to say, what are my needs in relationships? How well do I meet my own needs? Are there needs that I can't meet myself? Are there needs that a partner can't meet for me? Is it important to me that my partner does meet these needs? So in other words, do I need to consider maybe changing partners? Or can I get these needs met with other relationships like friends or colleagues, things like that? So I love that exercise because most of us don't really think about our needs with much depth, but this list is robust and it gives us a lot of opportunity to start thinking about how we take care of ourselves, how we show up in relationships, how other people show up with us and what works and what doesn't. Thank you. Thank you for that. Kind of segueing from that self-understanding and awareness, it reminded me of uh, a quote in one of your interviews that the brain is so sophisticated yet so dumb. And I think in a very practical and applicable sense, I thought immediately in your introduction when you spoke to your experience in courtrooms and with witness testimonial and how famously inaccurate witness testimonial is, but then kind of on a more personal level, how we can really understand (laughs) that expression and take it into consideration on this journey of self-understanding. With that comment, I suppose how it parlays into our own self-exploration and understanding is that we have to remember that 
we are an incredibly evolved species. But with that in mind, we have very primitive parts of our brain that still exist. And we need the sophisticated parts and the primitive parts. Without one or the other, we really wouldn't function the way that we do as humans. So that reptilian brain is the part of our brain that acts very quickly and doesn't ask a lot of questions. It just does what it needs to do to make sure that we stay safe. So if you've ever tried to cross a street and a speedy car drives by, that's the part of your brain that pulls you right off the street and back up onto the sidewalk and says, nope, before you even realize that you almost got hit. If the other part of our brain was in charge, the CEO part, our prefrontal cortex, you might have like 27 Zoom meetings and a couple of slide decks to talk about whether or not there are merits of stepping back onto the curb. And by that time, it's too late. So we need both parts of the brain to balance each other out. And I think that can sometimes be really frustrating for people because they'll find themselves repeating similar patterns over and over again and say, why am I doing this? What am I missing? And it's usually because that primitive survival-based part of the brain is taking over and responding in a way that the prefrontal cortex just can't get online with for a couple of reasons. One, it's slower to come online. It takes more energy. But two, so much of how it's developed is contingent on what we're exposed to in our lives growing up and how secure we feel in our ability to learn, think, and have the time and space to do those things. If we've grown up with a lot of chaos, crises, trauma, our reptile brain might be in more governance. And so we end up kind of repeating similar situations over and over again because that reptile brain is like, this feels familiar, I know how to do this, and now I'm going to protect myself like this. And so it can be really frustrating. And so I offer that up as an opportunity for people to have a lot more compassion for themselves and to integrate acceptance for the aspects of how they show up in the world that they may not really be thrilled about. And to really honor them and and make space for them. As much as you can try to change some parts of how you show up, there are just some things that might be your default. And when we try to stave that away, it just creates more discomfort in our own skin. So making friends with it, or at least having compassion with that part of you, can actually do a lot more to change your experience of yourself than anything else. I'd love to kind of bring it back to the beginning a bit and your previous experience before opening up your own private practice. And I'm curious how the lessons you learned through your work in the judicial system and in helping people work through addiction and all of that, kind of what you learned, the biggest takeaways and what we can all learn from that. I think what really was one of the biggest takeaways of my time working in the prison systems and within the court systems is that really people do not grow in isolation. And what I mean by that is oftentimes as a society, we want to point fingers and say, those people over there have done the bad things they're the people that we need to be really worried about. And we do that because we have a lot of fear. 
We have a lot of fear around staying safe, making sure that we have the resources we need to survive. And so as humans, we're always looking to fill in the gaps with what we don't know. And often that leads us to making a lot of faulty assumptions and judgments about other people. So when I say we don't live in a vacuum or we don't grow in a vacuum or in isolation, what I really mean is we have to take into consideration the context into which people are born and the way in which their reality has shaped their sense of survival needs and the strategies that are available to them. And when we can look at that, now I'm not condoning criminal behavior, but I think we have to look at how do people find themselves in the position that they're doing what they think is best and it's still is so detrimental to either themselves, the people they care about, or society as a whole. And when we can look at that, we can really start to create different kinds of policies and resources that allow people to thrive more holistically and from a more um, equal starting line, even if it will never be completely equal. Absolutely. Another kind of Big question (laughs) before uh, kind of starting to wrap up. What is the role of fear and shame in our lives and our relationships? When you look at trauma, hurt people hurt people. A lot of that comes from fear and shame. And then trauma consequentially causes fear and shame in in the people? I guess what I will say is that fear is a very natural and necessary human feeling and emotion. If we never felt fear, we wouldn't know how to protect ourselves amidst danger. However, if we have a lot of trauma that has gotten in the way of our brain appropriately assessing the level of risk that we're facing given our reality in the moment, as opposed to assessing fear for whatever originally happened that was really overwhelming and scary, then we tend to misappraise risk. And that can lead people to feeling more paranoid in relationships, more hypervigilant, likely to open up. And then that creates a lot more loneliness. And then the very things that they fear right? Not being loved, not being seen, not feeling safe, actually get perpetuated by the symptoms of their unresolved trauma, which is a real kick in the pants and a gift that you really want to stop giving from the trauma, but sometimes it's hard to shake. So I would say that about fear. And with regard to shame, shame is an interesting emotion. Different theoreticians and psychologists would say different things about shame. Some people look at it as a necessary emotion in small doses to help people develop pro-social behaviors. Without shame, why are people compelled, young people compelled to do anything? So some psychologists say that in small doses, shame is a good thing. Other psychologists say shame is not a good thing because it corrupts the relationship that a person has with themselves. And certainly if shame is chronic. So if people experience a lot of shaming growing up, a lot of language that devalues their worth or denigrates their experience, 
puts them in a position of, of being perceived as and spoken to as less than, however explicitly or implicitly, that can really erode someone's ability to feel like they are even worthy of the air they're breathing, let alone a partner that is going to show up with them and for them. And so shame can lead people to settling for relationships that are neglectful or abusive because they don't think they deserve anything more. But it can also swing the other way and perpetuate a lot of entitlement. And that entitlement can lead to a lot of acting out, whether it's acting out with passive aggressiveness or acting out with infidelity, acting out with financial coercion or dishonesty in relationships. I mean, it really can, entitlement is a really sneaky beast and it usually is born out of shame because shame is a very disempowered feeling. And as humans, we don't tolerate disempowerment very readily. So what happens is when we feel disempowered and victimized for a long period of time, we start to get angry. And that's a good thing because anger is a is an activating emotion. It gives us a sense of power. But if we don't feel like we have the right to express that anger or it won't be effective in getting us some sort of need met, it really just turns into entitlement and the pendulum swings too far. So then we start getting opportunistic or dismissive toward other people and acting much like the aggressors who hurt us in the first place. And I couldn't help but think back again to this concept of trauma, micro traumas, this kind of micro shame. And on a cultural level, whether it's shaming boys for crying or women's bodies, these micro shames build up and are often passed so subtly under our kind of conscious radar that we end up internalizing so many of these things and so much of this shame, it accumulates. It isn't, you know, a side by side, these small things that are lined up next to each other, they're stacked up on top of each other. And so again, recognizing how, yes, in some cases, these things, the causes could be one event. And in other cases, it's these accumulations, particularly when not dealt with. I often refer to that as death by a thousand pokes, right? Those are the ways that those little T traumas really build. One poke is not going to take you out at the knees, but if you are poked frequently and in lots of different places, especially the tender places, after time, you can just imagine how you might start to become more calloused and more self-protective and you know how that might really get in the way of you being able to feel liberated in your own skin. Absolutely, which is essentially what you people do. I loved when you first introduced yourself saying you help people move past trauma and kind of move through healing and eventually to a place where they can be intimate with themselves and with others. And so as we are here on the podcast, Let's Get Intimate, and you as the founder of Modern Intimacy, I would love to wrap up with you sharing your definition of intimacy with us. So my definition of intimacy is probably very similar to most people, but I really think about intimacy as a process of seeing and being seen and being willing to show up authentically 
regardless of your spots and stripes and letting someone really know you fully and knowing yourself, right? So with full transparency, authenticity, and with room for all of your flaws, just showing up, seeing yourself, being seen, and letting yourself really be fully seen. Right. And just to kind of bring it home in that sense where if you don't know yourself, can't see yourself, you aren't able to recognize if somebody else is actually seeing you. Essentially, yeah, you can't be seen if you can't own and recognize your own value and be able to measure whether somebody else is meeting that. Exactly. You just hit on something really important. So often we see the projection of who we need and not really someone's authentic self. And when someone has sort of a foreclosed identity that is expected of them, if they have a history of their family having a foreclosed identity on meaning they had to kind of pour themselves into the mold of what was expected to take care of their parents' feelings as opposed to the other way around. Parents are supposed to attune to children and create a context where children's feelings and experiences are the primary. Now, that's not without discipline, of course, and and guardrails and direction, but the parent-child relationship is supposed to be a one-way relationship where the parents are attuned and doting to the child's needs and helping them develop. But when a parent does not have their own stuff identified, worked out, resolved, healing, what ends up happening is they pull from the child. They get their emotional needs met from the child. And that child learns how to be whatever mom, dad, grandma, grandpa needs of them so that they can get whatever relational meat is left for some of their needs to get met. And so that can look like incredible people-pleasing behaviors in adulthood, but really it's about not even knowing who you are. And that chameleon-like ability to fit the mold of what's expected of you is often very unconscious. And so if you don't know yourself well, and other people have that need to pull, you're going to find yourself in a context where people don't really see you. They just see who they need you to be. And you'll show up in that way and vice versa, right? If you can't identify your own needs and wounds, you're likely to project those needs onto others and pull for people who will show up and fulfill those needs. And that might sound really great initially, but it's just not sustainable. And so then both people end up feeling hurt later down the road. Absolutely. The number of times I've heard that pattern and people in adulthood saying, I'm now trying to figure out who I was because I was so busy trying to be the person other people wanted me to be. And so really needing to start with that authentic understanding seeing ourselves and having that authentic understanding and intimacy with ourselves in order to be able to achieve actually authentic intimacy with other people. Precisely. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. It was so lovely chatting with you. So many wonderful 
pieces of wisdom in there. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This was really, really fruitful and robust conversation. So I'm so grateful for the attention and time that you took in creating really intellectually yummy questions. Casual, really light, really light <laughs> questions. <laughs> Heavy questions, but that lead to lighter living and lighter relationships. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us for the interview today. I recommend you check out our interview with Dr. Terry Coopers called The Psychology of Solitarity in between episodes 45 and 46, where we delve into mental health in prison and forensic psychology and the psychology behind the judicial system and our need for connection and our inability to properly learn and grow in circumstances of isolation. And specifically, we talk about the extreme conditions of isolation and solitary confinement and the effects that these conditions have on the human psyche. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the book club newsletter where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.